Turn with me to John chapter 11, verse 21 through 27. And we'll also be in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. John 11, 21 through 27. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now I'll turn with me to Revel- I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We'll start in verse 50. First Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then we will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now, if you will, turn with me to the back of your bulletin. You see here printed Revelations 5. If you see about halfway down, you see the dark print. The congregation will be reading the dark print. I'll be reading the rest of it. So please follow along, and when it gets... To worthy are you, we'll all go together. Revelations 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and looked and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp 
and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. See power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. We are in our last lesson in 1 Corinthians 15, and we will be returning to the book of 1 Chronicles to finish it off. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, you are El Shaddai, the Almighty God. And we thank you that you invite us into your presence, into your holy habitation. We come before you because you are the giving God. And we thank you that when you give, you move our hearts in a response of praise. We thank you that you give to us the forgiveness of sins. For that we say hallelujah. We thank you that when you invite us into your house, you give us your word. You teach us how to look at the world and how to know you. And we thank you that at your table, you give us food for kings and queens at the cost of the life of your own son. So now we come and ask that you would bless us. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verse 10 says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's Pentecost Sunday, but we're studying 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Corinthians 15, of course, focuses on resurrection from the dead, bodily resurrection from the dead. But I just wanted you to notice that when God works, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, there are particular works associated to each person of the triune God, but they are one God, 
And so all that God does, all of God does it. So, for example, you see about creation through the Father, through the Son, through the Spirit. Well, the same thing is true of the resurrection of the dead. The Spirit has a part to play in the resurrection of the dead as well. So we are coming to the end of chapter 15, and uh, we're coming to the uh, statement that death is swallowed up in victory. And you recall that Satan walks about like a prowling lion, lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, what Satan is trying to do is eat you up. But when it comes to the resurrection of the dead, Christ eats up death. Death is swallowed up. He takes it down, and you and I live. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch, inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we uh, groan, being <clears throat> burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, naked, but to be clothed in order that what is... Uh, what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Now he who prepared us to do this very thing, to, for this very purpose, is God, who gives to us the Spirit as a down payment, a pledge. So what happened on Pentecost Sunday is all of those who trusted in Christ received the gift of the Spirit, and the Spirit came to dwell in them. He does many ministries within us individually 
and corporately. And he is the guarantee of something greater to come. So as we get this earnest of the Holy Spirit and we see our lives being changed by the Holy Spirit, we recognize and long more for, well, the resurrection of the dead. Now Paul is talking about our bodies like a tent, a temporary thing, and then a house, an eternal dwelling. He says the house is from heaven or in heaven. He does not mean by that, I hope you realize, that we are going to go into heaven and we're going to have these new dwelling everlasting bodies. In fact, when you die now and you go to heaven, you have no body. You are, as he says here, unclothed, naked. We don't want to be naked. Paul is not looking for death. He's looking for this house, his eternal body, the very kind of body that we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians. And when he gets that house, when you get that house, when I get that house, we will be living on the earth forever. Of course, it will be, well, how could we put it? Reconditioned, a new heavens and a new earth. So I just want you to see the uh, work of the Spirit, just a, a tad bit because it's Pentecost Sunday, in the resurrection of the dead. So here we are in 1 Corinthians, and uh, we've been working our way through, and we remember that uh, probably most of the time, when we think about 1 Corinthians 15, we think about verses 3 and 4. Not all the time, particularly at funerals. We look at the latter, chap the latter verses in the chapter. But 1 Corinthians 15 is known for the gospel. Death, burial, Resurrection of Jesus. And uh, sometimes we can have such a myopic focus that we forget that death, burial, resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 is to talk to us. It's presented to us for the sake of teaching us about resurrection. So it was just flabbergasting to... I should say, Paul was flabbergasted that anyone in the church would say there is no resurrection. And we looked at verses 12, excuse me, verses, yeah, verses 12 through 19, at the logic of resurrection. In other words, just to put it simply, for time's sake, if there's no resurrection, then Christ wasn't raised either. And if Christ wasn't raised, then Christianity is just a hoax. But of course, Christ was raised from the dead. Then we saw about resurrection in verses 20 and following through 28 in terms of the sheath that was lifted up to heaven in the celebration around Passover. And we saw that resurrection is like that. Christ is the first fruits, and then those who are in Christ come after him. 
And we discover then that connection, at least the way it seems to be written in 1 Corinthians 15, that the resurrection will happen when the kingdom is completed. The last enemy that Christ is going to destroy is the enemy of death. He's going to swallow it up, and at the end of the kingdom, when he's accomplished everything, when he's going to present it to God, just prior to that comes resurrection from the dead. Then we looked at verse 29 one Sunday about being baptized for the dead, and we suggested that this is a picture from the book of Leviticus, where there were all kinds of baptisms, that's the word in Leviticus, and it had to do with when you, when you were unclean, you couldn't go up to the tabernacle. You were separated from God. You were dead. And that becomes most poignant when you look at the leper, who had to go way outside of the camp, could not fellowship with God whatsoever, could not go up there until he's cleansed, and then part of the cleansing ritual was bathing, a water baptism. And that is to teach us about resurrection. And we also had a baptism, which is those kinds of terms. You go through the water and you come out the other side. So uh, the flood is compared to baptism. Many people died. Noah went safely through the water into a new life. And then we've been uh, looking at uh, verse 35 and following. Look, if you would, at 1 Corinthians verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? So two questions are asked. They're answered in reverse order. So first, uh, he tells us what kind of bodies they come in. And we saw the comparisons from verse 36 down through verse 49. Uh, between a seed being planted, it dies, decays, then it sprouts a new body, comes to life. And then he compares that, of course, with, uh, with the sun and the moon and the stars. So he's talking about what kind of body we come with. And then he compares the first Adam with the last Adam, the first Adam with the second Adam. And uh, Adam was a man who had life, but the second Adam was a man who was a life-giving spirit. And that uh, I suggested to you that that tells us something about who we are. We're also life-givers because this Water is flowing out of us from our inmost being. That's how people come to Christ, when they see us with joy and living for Christ with opportunities to speak to them. So we looked at that, and then this morning we're just going to quickly look at verses 50 through the end of the chapter. And uh, this is how the resurrection will take place. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So 
Flesh and blood is a way of talking about being human, but you can see that it's compared with being perishable. So how can the perishable inherit the imperishable? And all of us know, because of Adam's sin, and subsequent to that, our sin as well, we are perishable. We decay. We have corruption, not only of the heart, but within our bodies. We're all primed to die. So how is the perishable going to inherit the imperishable? That's what flesh and blood is. It is perishable. And Jesus came to us in flesh and blood, Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, and he was perishable. They put him to death. But when he rose from the dead, he had a glorified body that is imperishable. He inherited the imperishable. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. So now he's telling us something that is couched in the Old Testament, but was not known. And now he's telling us, this is the way it's going to happen. Some people are not going to die before the kingdom is completed and Christ returns. Most people will die. So those who are alive at Christ's return, they will be changed just like that, in the twinkling of an eye. It's uh, the smallest kind of number one could come up with, like the atom that cannot be divided. It's just like that. So when Christ comes, the dead will be raised, and those who are alive will be changed, and they will have new glorified bodies. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality. So we are mortal people. Uh, in Greek, it's just the word death. This death must put on immortality. It's quite something. So what Paul is telling us is we're all going to get new bodies. And he tells us that it's going to happen at the last trumpet. Now, trumpets come out of Numbers chapter 10, and there were two horns made, and they were blown for an alarm to go to battle. They were blown in a non-alarm fashion for the congregation to gather. And you can trace uh, these trumpets through the Bible. When you come down to the New Testament, of course, there are trumpets in the book of Revelation, but there are three mentions of trumpets, and one is here. And the other one, one of the other ones, is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is also a passage having to do with resurrection. We read it, not last week, I believe, but the week before, and you recall 
and this is often read at funerals or at gravesides, because the purpose of the passage was to encourage people who had relatives or friends who had died. The word fallen asleep is used, which is appropriate for Christians. We fall asleep in death because we're going to wake up. And Paul was encouraging the people that those who have fallen asleep, they're they're not lost. They're going to come to life. Jesus is going to come with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead will be raised, and the others will come with him, and uh, their spirit and body will be reunited, will be caught up into the... uh, Air and thus we will always be with the Lord. So comfort one another with these words. There's a trumpet. There's another trumpet in the, in the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 24. And in Matthew chapter 24, it's in that section, verses, uh, verses 29 through 31, which are about looking up into the heavens and the sun's dark and the moon turns to blood and the stars fall and the powers of the heavens are shaken, and then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens. And then he will send forth his angels with the blast of a trumpet, and they will gather the elect from one end of the earth to the other. Now, the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 It's called the last trumpet. Now, I realize that when it comes to, you know, sketching out your eschatology, there are a lot of different views within the church. And uh, it's not like it is the most important doctrine. One would hardly say that. Nevertheless, we want truth. We want to know what God really is saying. So I have my views, and of course my views are always right. You can have your wrong view if you want to. Tongue in cheek. So last trumpet, in my opinion, means just that, the last trumpet. The trumpet in Matthew chapter 24 even though it talks about the sun growing dark and the moon turning to blood and the stars falling from the skies, it is not talking about the end of history. It is talking about A.D. 70, when the sign of the Son of Man appeared in the sky and the sign was the temple was destroyed, just as Jesus told Caiaphas, this is what you're going to see, the Son of Man coming with power. And in connection with that, that time, things entered a new stage in history. Now Judaism is dead. You can't have Judaism without a temple. Judaism is dead. The church is alive. And now, in Matthew 24, it says, we're going to send out angels with a trumpet blast to gather the elect. 
Well, you and I, I hope we both know that the word angel sometimes talks about, well, just that, angels, but other times it talks about people because the word angel simply means messenger. And angels are God's messengers, but as believers, we are also God's messengers. And I believe in Matthew 24, that's what it's talking about. This is the era we now live in. The gospel message was going, is going throughout the whole globe, sending out the message to collect the elect from one end of the heaven to the other end of the heaven. Now, so that has to do with what started in A.D. 70. It's not called the last trumpet. It's a great trumpet. Then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is the problem passage in dealing with the end times. So in certain, in certain contexts, we've... Uh, the, uh, let, me, let me put it this way. The way I grew up, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is talking about the rapture. Just before the tribulation. I don't think that's what it's talking about. Because I think 1 Corinthians 15 is telling us something. There's one great resurrection. And it's at the end of the kingdom. When Jesus hands the kingdom over to his father. So I think what's happening in 1 Thessalonians, although you may think I'm nuts here, and, you know, you have that prerogative. Just remember, I'm right. I think 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is using uh, a picture from Rome so that when a general went off to battle and he won a victory and he's coming back home, people would go out to meet him and usher him home. I think that's what First Thessalonians is talking about, that at the resurrection, when Jesus comes to the earth, those who are alive will be caught up into the air, those who are dead will be raised from the dead, and we will go up in the air and meet Jesus and usher him back to earth. And we will live on the earth for eternity in imperishable, immortal bodies. And thus, we will always be with the Lord. And in 2 Corinthians, that's what Paul wants. He doesn't want to die and be naked, be unclothed. He wants to be clothed with his house from heaven, with a new body. Well, that didn't happen for Paul. That's what he wanted, and quite frankly, that's what we all want. I don't suppose most of us in this room want to die. In fact, we try to do things not to die. Then when we get old and rickety like me, when we get rickety enough, we may want to die. But we try to stay alive. And in, in, in the, in the uh, eschatology that I grew up in, you're looking every day for the rapture because you'll be caught up with the Lord and have, uh, have a new body. Well, 
We are going to get new bodies. The question, of course, is when and how that's going to come about. But that's the way, what I think Paul is thinking of. And when you read 1 Corinthians 15, that seems to be the way he's leaning. Now, like I said, eschatology, that is, the study of the rapture and the second coming and the millennium, all those things, it's not as important as other things, although Paul gives it quite a bit of time here in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, if we read between the lines here, we're talking about victory that comes because Christ died and rose again and carried our sins away as far as the east is from the west. And he ascended into the heavens and he sat down at the right hand of the Father and he received the promise which he poured out on the day of Pentecost, that is the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes to live in us, we have victory. Now, turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 6. And Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine wine and on this mountain he will swallow up the the covering which is over all peoples even the veil which is even the veil that he, which is stretched out over all nations he will swallow up death for all time <clears throat> and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For Yahweh has spoken and it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. For whom, we, <clears throat> for whom we have waited, 
that he might save us. This is Yahweh for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So just notice this is something that's going to happen for all peoples. It looks like, and most people agree, that it's at the end, if we can put it that way, before Christ comes. And what he's, what he's going to do is he's going to come. And that's the picture in Revelation. This city comes down from heaven and it comes down to the earth. And in that city is Christ. That city, by the way, is a metaphor because the city is a bride decked out for her husband. And at the end of time, Christ is going to do what he told his apostles. He's going to have them sit down at table, and he's going to gird himself and serve them, serve us. And this is when death has been swallowed up. Yahweh will swallow up death. It will disappear. Death will go away. It's incredible. So you have a, a picture here, a metaphor of an animal. Now turn to Hosea chapter 13. Hosea chapter 13 is about punishment that's coming on the northern nation, Israel. And verse 14 says, Hosea chapter 13, verse 14 says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? It's written the way in a Hebrew where, where one would say, No, I won't do that. Shall I redeem them from death? Written in such a way that you say, no, I won't do that. O death, where are your thorns? O shield, where is your sting? So you can see back in, uh, I, uh, back in Corinthians that Paul has taken these quotations, and he's modified them. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your thorns? O oh, death, where is your where is your sting? So, how, how do we reconcile what Paul's doing? So, Hosea's quoting it to say, the curse is on you. You're going to have thorns. Death is on you. It's going to sting you. Paul's saying it in a different fashion. He's saying, ah, this is, this is Paul's taunt. You're not going to have victory, death. And your sting is going to become nothing. Well, of course, thorns are a picture of the curse. Both thorns and thistles it will produce for you. So Paul turns the words around. Where are your thorns? If the thorns are gone, you have victory. Death is not going to have victory. And even though death 
causes a lot of sadness. And uh, people die <laughs> at all stages of life. And it's bitter. It interrupts life. Brings about sadness. Yet, just think of what Paul said. We read it right up at the front. Momentary light affliction is producing for me an eternal weight of glory. Now, Paul calls it momentary light affliction. Would you call Paul's affliction momentary and light? Read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Stoned, beaten with whips, with 39 lashes, beaten with rods, left in the deep for a night and the day, out in the ocean, trying to survive, hungry, persecuted. No, it was hard affliction. But he calls it momentary. How so? Momentary light affliction. Because in comparison, in comparison with eternity. Right now, uh, Psalm 90 says we get, you know, 70 years of life, 80 if by strength. And, you know, that's, that's I'd say, pretty much where the average is. You know when you get to 70, death is right around the corner. It's looking at you, coming for you. But it's only 70 years where we live with death that has this sting. And then what happens? Well, then we become unclothed. Our body dies. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So immediately we're in the Lord's presence. And in my 38 years here, we've seen a lot of our fellow believers depart from us in death. Some in old age, like Marie Jones, who was a beautiful saint. And some young, teenagers, departed from us. And they're with the Lord. So whether it's 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, 70 years, 80 years, it's nothing. So Paul can say, ah, this is just momentary light affliction. And it's working for me an eternal weight of glory. Why? Because Paul was suffering out of service to the Lord. So here, death has lost its power. That's what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is about. Thus, you should encourage one another, comfort one another with these words, because you will see your loved one, if he or she is a Christian, again, because of resurrection. But let's make no mistake. 1 Corinthians Chapter 15 tells us death is an enemy. It is the last enemy that Jesus is going to destroy. He's going to swallow up death. There will be no more death. There will be the second death, 
for those who do not believe in Christ. The first death takes them out of this life. The second death takes them away from God forever, out of his life. So, uh, <clears throat> need to do something about that. So, death is an enemy. And we, we've seen the, the, the way it hurts people over the years. And it's particularly uh, bothersome when it's a loved one who doesn't know Christ who dies. What Paul is telling us, death has no victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christians can't find it. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, that looks like it's backwards, because you sin, then you're judged with death. That's what happened to Adam. In the day you eat, you will die. He sinned, and then he died. This is written like, well, death has power, and it stings you. Well, after Adam, that's exactly what happens. Everybody comes into the world as a walking dead person. And we fall under the sway of sin, this power, and we get stung. We get hurt by sin. Where is your sting? Your where the, the, the power, let me just read it so I get it right. The sting of death is sin. We come into the world sinners, and the power of sin is the law. And uh, we studied Romans, and some of you weren't here for that study, but I think we all know as evangelicals that when you put law in front of somebody, the human natural reaction is to violate the law. Put up a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch. You've got to check it out. Is it really wet? That comes from sin. But thanks be to God, he's gained for us the victory. So, He's satisfied the law for us. He's covered all of our sin in violation of the law. And he has given to us the presence of the Holy Spirit now to empower us to live and keep law. The Bible's full of law. Just the Ten Commandments. We know the Ten Commandments should be kept. Uh, Nevertheless, in lots of cases, when we see them set before us, oh, there's a little natural reaction to say no. But Christ comes along, and he changes that for us. And so Paul is presenting this case. Okay, we're going to live out our lives, 70, 80 years, whatever it's going to be, and death is going to confront us in lots of different instances, and finally, our own death. 
And because we live in, uh, because we're natural, perishable people with a problem of decay in our heart and in our body that comes from the judgment of sin, we're going to get stung over and over again. You know, you end up yelling at your wife or your kid. And you know you're wrong. And then, you know, you're stung. It just bit you. Yet, we know we will be raised from the dead. So when death comes and gets us, we can go easily. We don't have to fight it. In uh, older days, in churches, you were taught how to die well. That's not what happens today in the evangelical church, is it? No, what are you taught? You're taught how to live well. How to get money, how to do this, how to do that. But you're not taught how to die well. Well, we're all going to die, and we need to be with the mindset of Paul. Death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? In the end, I'm going to be raised from the dead forever. And then the corruptible will be gone. It will be incorruptible. We will be perfect. Can you imagine that? We will not be infinite. infinite. We won't know everything, but we won't sin anymore. We won't want to sin. We won't be tempted to sin. And we won't sin. We'll be with Christ on this earth. I have no idea what that's going to look like. I don't think anybody does. But it will be magnificent. And so, let me remind you then, when you think about 1 Corinthians 15, you've got these two bookends. We start out with the gospel, and that whole paragraph brings us to the point where Paul says he was not fit to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church, but he is what he is by the grace of God, and God's grace did not prove vain but he labored more than all the other apostles. Yet it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So, Paul is saying, yeah, yeah, there's death, but there's resurrection. And we're on this side, and one day we'll be on that side, and over here we're working for Christ, and we'll be cut off of this side, and we'll come to the other side and be with him until we're resurrected. And he wants us to realize that in this short lifespan, all the work we do for Christ will not be in vain. I don't know how it's going to carry over. Paul says 
it's working for him an eternal weight of glory. We're not exactly told what that looks like, but that is the promise. And so it's bookends. Paul labored, we labor. And in the middle, we live our life with the assurance, ah, life has purpose, has meaning, and we will die, but we will rise again. Immovable, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Of course, the first thing we have to be steadfast in is getting down into our bones, the resurrection of the dead. It's not just something you get out of the darkness statement and you check it off and you say, I believe that. No, no. This doctrine, this truth, is what allows us to do exactly what Jesus told us to do. If anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross, in Luke it says daily, let him take up his cross and follow me. In other words, you're going to not physically die, maybe some of us will die by persecution, but we're going to die to self. We're going to give up on self and follow Christ. He's going to be in charge. And what he says goes, even though we may not like it, we're going to die to self. And you think, well, man, you know, how's that going to help me in life? But Paul is saying, wait, it works for you an eternal weight of glory when you finally put on that eternal house, that glorified body. So resurrection of the dead is very important. Where it fits in someone's eschatology, well, that's important, but not nearly as important as letting resurrection from the dead control you like it controlled Paul, because that's one of his arguments. Would I fight with wild beasts in Ephesus if there's no resurrection of the dead? That's what the world is doing. They're living to grab all they can get because you only go around once and then there is no more. No. No. We're living to die. Because at the resurrection of the dead, there's nothing that will ever compare with that. Stand with me. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for giving us your word and giving us your son who, thanks to him, has taken away the victory of death and he's taken away the sting of death and he's given to us life and it will be an immortal life with a new body with no more sin. Help us, Father, in thinking about that great gift that lies in the future for us, then to be people who say, yes, this is what I will do. I will take up my cross, I'll die to self, and I will be a disciple of Christ. He will be my teacher, 
He will be my guide. So empower us towards that end, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.